Bats. Joining me somewhere from back in Alaska is our good friend Al Bat. Hey, Al, did you get uh, to see Santa? Was he happened to be in Alaska just, you know, vacation? No, the <laughs> Northern Lights were there, though. So that really? Was, oh. Yeah, that was very cool. You know, they keep bad hours. They don't come out till oh, like, midnight <laughs> or so. Yeah, it's just... Uh, so I, I know a lot of folks sat there, had got a like an hour or two nap, and then went out and drove around, and looked at them. But it's it's always fun to see them, and the problem so often is that it's cloudy, and you don't get to see them. But I did get a look at them, so I was very very happy with that. I uh, uh, you mentioned before we went on the air of a. Uh, an esteemed birder from Minnesota who just uh, sadly passed away. His name was Bob Jansen. He'd been in hospice for a few months, and I have uh, birded uh, quite often with Mr. Jansen and oh. thought the world of him. And uh, oh, we uh, were—I think the last time I really spent much time with him was when we had a yellow-crowned night heron on uh, in Albert Lee. And Bob came down, and I found it for him, and we had a nice talk. And he's just a just a kind gentleman who was, he loved birds from the get-go of his life. And he sold envelopes, so he traveled all over the state. I don't know how many envelopes he sold, but he <laughs> sure saw, saw a lot of birds. And he was a county lister, they're called, so he saw at least 200 birds in every county in wow. the state of Minnesota. So... And if you go to state parks and you get things about checklists about birds, uh, he's the guy that did most of those at our state parks. Well, I am sorry for your loss. He sounds like a, a really nice guy. He was an exceptional fella, so I'm just glad I knew him. Hey, hey, this, you know, I have to look at everything in the fall. Isn't it amazing how everything changes from day to day? <laughs> I mean, it's that way every year, but it seems in fall it's, more noticeable maybe you're just going along you say wow look at that that tree had leaves yesterday and now it's got this beautiful craggly look that trees get and i you know if there's a sign that says ignore this sign i've got to look at it it's just it's that time of year and why break out the worry about winter already you know i mean that's we're minnesotans and we need to do that i guess to prepare but just enjoy the fall and i'm i watched a little american kestrel bob on a utility wire and it perched it was perched on it during a brisk wind. We have a brisk wind out there today. Yeah. And an interesting fact is 27% of male American kestrels are named Bob because of that. <laughs> you know, I had a, a nice visit with a fellow called Mario Benassi. I've known Mario for oh, ever and a day. He's a falconer in Haines, Alaska. And he was walking around, he has a little kestrel that he brings out to show people. Beautiful little female. The females are bigger than the male kestrels, as in most raptors. The females are larger than the males, I think, just to keep the male behaving. And he had a red-tailed hawk that he's uh, training or I should I say attempting to train. It just and they like most things, it never goes perfectly well. So the raptor he's using now is interested in some grouse, and Mario actually uses the, these uh, falconry to get food for his family. But he's interested in some grouse, this hawk. 
until a raven with a piece of meat in its bill flew by, and the hawk immediately forgot about the grouse and pursued the poor raven until the the raven dropped the meat and the hawk got it. So it's it's tough to be a raven sometimes. Um, Jim Shook, a friend that lives also in Haines, Alaska, said he saw a bald eagle being bothered by a a raven, and finally the eagle just had enough, went up in a tree, and then flew back and just hit the raven. And Jim said it was just like an explosion of feathers. I've seen that happen when a bald eagle hit a gull. So I guess the only difference was one with black feathers and one was white feathers. A friend uh, named, well, I better put her full title on there, Dr. Heather Hewson, she is with a uh, professor in the Department of Animal Science at Cornell University in Ithaca, New York. I hope she'd be happy with that introduction. She showed me some photos of a red-tailed hawk and a turkey vulture eating meat she'd placed in pumpkins. And why would you put meat in a pumpkin? We don't even do that. <laughs> Well, she does it to stimulate the birds, give them something to do, and say, hey, what's going on there, to investigate and, uh, you know, put a new wrinkle in their life. Get out there and just do stuff. She also tried it with a great horned owl, and that owl refused to be bothered or involved with a jack-o'-lantern in any way. It just... She said it just looked at her like, are you kidding me? I'm not, I'm not going to lower myself to that. It reminded me how intelligent vultures are. I think each year I see some feeding on rotting pumpkins in fields, and you might say, well, that sure shows a lot of intelligence, eating rotting pumpkins. But they do, they learn what they can eat, and it's, I suppose it's easy to do that if your whole life just depends on finding food. But they'll eat some of those pumpkins. We used to, we raised a lot of pumpkins, and we could never... We always had more than we could use. We'd give them to people. So we'd feed them to the pigs, and then the vultures would come in, and they'd They'd eat some, they'd nibble on some, they shredded some, just kind of like a activity. I've been told they also eat grapes and probably other things, too, but it was uh, really cool, and I thank Heather for sharing those photos with me. Well, you know, they do say, like, with dogs and cats, they add pumpkin sometimes to the food. They say it's good for your digestive system, so maybe they've got something that they know there. I Boy, I like pumpkins, uh, but, you know, I... Now, this is a guy talking. Sometimes <laughs> the whole pumpkin spice thing gets a little overwhelming. Yeah. It's, just, it's pretty much everywhere you go, there's pumpkin spice. So you got a nice uh, uh, letter or uh, email from Mark Bosacker, and he said he enjoys listening to the program, so I appreciate that. He says, I'm curious, but it's not just a simple question. None of them are, Mark. <laughs> Uh, I said, Mr. Bat and I grew up about the same time and not too far from each other, Heartland and Clarks Grove, respectively. When I was a kid, I was always impressed by the woods in the Heartland area. It seemed there was nearly a contiguous oak park, or oak forest, running along a ridge from Albert Lee to almost Wasika. There's not too much of it left now. I wouldn't try to tempt Al into making any controversial statements <laughs> about the Department of Agriculture. Methanol are multinational corporations. I'm just interested in any anecdotes he might have 
want to share about that said forest. For example, when I was young, I could look at both a fox and badger dens within walking distance. The old local farmers had stories about the Indians and the mounds they left. In Al's case, living near a larger woods, not far from the potential wildlife corridor along the Lesur River, I'd think he might have pretty interesting things to say about it. Well, thank you, Mark. And, uh, yeah, there was, uh, there was a stretch of oak. Uh, I grew up along the Lesur River, almost on it. Uh, sometimes I think in it, because I spent a lot of time in it. Uh, I have to mention one thing about uh, Clark's Grove. We used to haul our milk to Clark's Grove, where our creamery was. Heartland did not have a creamery at that time. But U.S. 65's original path at Clark's Grove, and uh, this is in north-central Freeborn County, brought it directly through the center of town on its way between Albert Lee and the Twin Cities. And the route was originally a county road and graded as part of the state road program in well, 1919 or something like that, and then taken over as a temporary route of state highway I want to say it was called one way back, and then that's probably a couple years later, so say 1921. And the old road remained in use until the first modern highway was open in 1929. I know that date for a fact. The new highway was designed to bypass Clark's Grove to the east and eliminate two right-angled turns on the old road, shortening the route by Oh, a half mile or so, I suppose. And in years since, the landscape around Clark's Grove has changed dramatically, mostly because of the construction of I-35. And uh, they're still part of the old 65, just outside of Clark's Grove. The state turned it back. The township had it, has it now, and have done a lot of uh, repair on it. But Mark, as far if we go out to Myrie Big Island, it's kind of the toe of the big woods, the famous big woods, maple basswood forest. And it's kind of where it meets the prairie there. Where I grew up and where you grew up, Mark, we were prairie folks. Uh, the thing, the only thing that changed was the direction the wind was blowing. And it was, uh, we'd see cottonwoods and willows, and the Lesur River was just covered with cottonwoods and willows because they hadn't cleaned them out at that time. So as a kid, I would get in there and walk as far north as I could through all those cottonwood trees and willows. And it was it was Disneyland for a kid who was never getting to Disneyland, just to walk through all that and see everything I could see there. Where I grew up was mostly oak, baroque. Uh, a lot of the prairie uh, had what they would call grub oak out there. It was oak trees growing out in the prairie. And the pioneers came, and they said they were short oak trees. But when it came time to dig them out to turn it into plowed ground, it had uh, maybe a 40-year root system. They were old trees, but had been burned off. So there was these beautiful oak trees, and that's where I grew up. And a lot of this uh, was still uh, oak trees. Our our place is still primarily oak trees. Where I grew up, there was the Batwoods and the Loomis Woods, and they were both filled with oak trees. But there were also, 
we had walnuts. Uh, we even had butternuts for a while till they got uh, whatever disease that mm-hmm. was. that got butternuts, and we lost them all. But yeah, Mark, it was uh, it was a good. You know, it's uh, it was a different time, and that we like to say, yeah, it was it was the good old days. That's what we called them. And we tell, uh, oh, you know, we tell kids and grandkids how oh, how hard those good old days were, but how wonderful they were as well. So, Mark, thanks for uh, bringing that back. And, yeah, a lot of them have been taken out. You know, we used to have a lot of them. They were uh, acted as fence lines, and they were taken out and fence lines put in, and now the fence lines have been taken out. So we've lost all those markings of our lives. Uh, we'd see aerial photos. The guys would come over, and they'd take pictures of everybody's farm from uh, airplane. And they'd say, uh, you know, they'd sell them to you, of course. Do you mm-hmm. want the colored one? And my dad said, why would I want to, you know, I don't even want the black and white one, but my mom did. <laughs> so we got those, and you look at those, and you can see all these uh, tree lines snaking all all around. And, uh, Mark, I certainly do miss them as well. So thank you. You, you mentioned those those photos. I, we, I remember one time there was one that was colorized. I don't know, it was black and white, and they had to, like, paint it. Or, it was just an odd yep. thing, colorized, I guess. But I remember the one time that it was so funny. I remember a plane going over, kind of, you know, back and forth. And sure enough, in one of those photos, there I am, uh, am on top of the chopper box, um there was a bunch of the haylage that had, you know, gotten piled up on it. And, of course, you don't want it to rust. So there's a picture in that picture from way far away. It looked like a little teeny little dot. And I'm on top uh, pushing the, the uh, haylage off the top of the chopper box. Oh, <laughs> man. Like, that's funny. Yeah, the, the colored ones had an odd look to them. Coloration. Oh, it was, see? yeah, some yeah. kind of an odd thing. But they were fun, and my parents did get them. And the cool thing was we were surrounded by seven lakes and ponds in the Apple River, so ours was always really pretty. You know, we had about 700 acres, but it was just beautiful because they'd do it in the fall a lot of times, and then you'd have all those lakes. So we've got some really pretty pictures, and, of course, now it's all nice. it's all gone. We had, uh, we grew up, or I grew up on Mule Lake, and then uh, by our barn we had a a marsh. I don't know, you know, all we ever called it was the marsh. It didn't have a proper name, which is funny because you tended to name things like that. But there was one photo they took, and uh, Larry Holland, who was my neighbor, and I were chasing up the Holsteins, and there's somebody's foot in the <laughs> in the photo way down the corner you, and you can only imagine how many hours we had to peruse that photo <laughs> to find that and of course i said that's that's my foot in there and larry said no, it's not that's it's mine, mine. So, see and, and the problem was we were we wore kind of the same shoes those red wing work oh, shoes yeah. so you really couldn't say well yeah those are mine they're blue or they had the, those were Jordans, Michael Jordans or something. We didn't. We all got the same things from the the uh, Red Wing shoe store in beautiful Heartland. Uh, Tim Scott. Speaking of vultures, Tim sent me a nice thing <laughs> from the New York Times article, and it said their fans insist that the intelligence of vultures rival 
the famously brainy parrots and corvids in the use of tools mm. and artful maneuvers to secure their needs and desires. Egyptian vultures, for example, have been shown to throw stones at ostrich eggs to crack through the shell. So, I, yeah, I'm just, I'm a big fan of vultures. Uh, Micah said, as I was going for a walk, I noticed a raptor of some sort with something dangling and whipping silhouette, uh, uh, whipping around. It was kind of difficult to make out as it was between the sun and myself. So seeing the silhouette of everything, then I noticed it dropped whatever it was carrying about 50 feet in front of me on the highway. I walked up to see nothing. Could have sworn it was directly over the center of the highway. So I looked around the ditch, and there it was. Poor little squirrel. Figure he tried... Uh, doing his best Rocky the Flying Squirrel impersonation, aiming for the tall grass, but came up two feet short. Whatever it was that dropped him continued on, and it didn't appear to have any more interest. So was this a attempted relocation of perhaps an annoying squirrel gone horribly wrong? Will the raptor come back later, or is the squirrel just an enemy? The way it was flailing around, is it possible it bit the raptor? Driving the other day in Mankato, I noticed a pail on the side of the road up on the curb. So we got a pail on a curb. I thought to myself, I think I just saw the ghost of Kirby Bucket. (laughs) Oh, yeah, so all the Twins fans out there, the ghost of Kirby Bucket. Um, I, again, back to Mark's, we had that line of cottonwoods, and the cows were pastured along it, and I remember uh, being out there, uh, probably getting the cows, because it seemed like I spent half my life uh, retrieving cattle. And a red-tailed hawk come down and snatched a, uh, I believe it was a fox squirrel, might have been a gray, and went up in the air and got up high. And, you know, when you're a kid like that, your eyesight is pretty incredible in most cases. And I looked up, and you could see the squirrel kind of bend up and a looked like it probably bit that raptor who immediately let go of that squirrel and it fell and you see it was kind of trying to use its tail as a as a parachute and it hit the ground and i, I ran over there and it was a, a goner so oh. it was on its way before that all happened but the red-tailed hawk just it beat it out of there would they come back and get it that's very possible micah and the the thing is when you know that little squirrel falls down it goes away in a hurry something finds it uh, a mammal of some kind will find it uh, you know it, it'll go away something'll get it between insects mammals other birds uh, it, something's going to go with that uh Jennifer Jen I should say Jennifer and Lily uh sent a photo uh, that of a woodpecker that Lily spotted last week. He had a red head, whitish belly, whitish markings, and she would like to know. Oh, she's got two wonder, a couple of wonderful questions. It's a, a red-bellied woodpecker, and sometimes if you squint real hard, you can see a little bit on the belly. Uh, very often, it will. Uh, not have any really at all that you can see but it's a red-bellied woodpecker and they spend all year here with us and we're just happy to have them here it's 
she asked the question, how many times it would it needs to peck to get inside that tree? Oh. And Lily, man, <laughs> good question. Uh, you should you should be the one. Uh, I hope that's your uh, your learning area. So someday you'll be able to tell us all how many. Uh, it would certainly depend on the kind of wood, how solid it is, or how rotten it is. I don't know how long it would take. I know when they come to the feeder, it doesn't take more than one peck to open a sunflower seed. They're very good at doing that. She asked what kind of call it makes. It's a peevish call. It just sounds like they're ticked off about something. <laughs> something isn't going their way. And it uh, it's... It's very similar to things that uh, red bell or red-headed woodpeckers make, but I am going to try to play this and see how it works. There we go. We'll go it now. <laughs> so I, that's called a queer call. Queer uh, Q U E double R. And it's just, uh, they just sound like they're kind of ticked off a lot of times. And maybe they are. Now, do do the pileated sound similar? Because on Sunday I saw a pileated woodpecker in my neighbor's backyard. It was going to their their bird feeder on the back of the deck. And I've never seen one in my backyard before. So I was a little surprised because they're actually kind of bigger, if if, at least I thought it was. They're the size of a crow. Yeah. This is a big bird. And their call is, if you hear, a lot of folks are familiar with a flicker call. They do kind of a, oh, I don't know. It's really loud. The pileated is like a flicker, only it's louder, as you might expect, because it's so much bigger. And they are just, uh, I also have that here, and we'll see, hope that works. I walked with a friend, and he said it sounds sort of like a chicken. <laughs> kind of. I suppose, yeah, it does like a chicken upset about something. Yeah. But, yeah, they make that uh, sound, and people will ask, how do I tell the difference between uh, the flicker call and the pileated? And I tell them when you hear it, you will just say, that must be the pileated because it's really loud and oh. it carries well. Okay. It's and but Lily, thanks and boy, good luck with your research on finding how many hammers it takes to get through stuff. That would be great. I see a future science project in Lily's future. I think Lily's kind of very young right now, but maybe that's something she can consider for a future science project. That's right. There was a, um, a oh a guy that studied birds. I'm not sure if he's an ornithologist or not. Probably way way back who caught an ivory-billed woodpecker when they were uh, not that hard to see. And he got one, and he brought it into his house or place he rented or hotel room or something and let it in there, and it ruined a lot of the furniture, hammering away on it. So they they need to be pecking. I got a nice email from a listener, said, what? Al, what is that old saying about sedges and grasses? I know you'll know. I think it's probably indicating the old part there that I would know. Yes, sedges have edges, rushes are round, and grasses have nodes all the way to the ground. That's the one I uh, 
grew up and that was that was on the test i remember that part so you remember stuff that's on the test uh another listener said al how do flying squirrels fly um, their flight is made possible by a fold of skin. It's a membrane that extends from the front to the hind feet. And when their legs are outstretched, that skin stretches to form a large wing-like surface, which enables the squirrel to glide as far as what, 150 feet, maybe. I sat with friends uh, up in uh, Edina. They had this beautiful backyard, and we'd sit there at night and just talk smart and watch those squirrels glide into the feeder. And I would say probably most of the glides were 20 to 30 feet, but there was one guy. I don't know what he was up to. He just uh, came in, and he went from one side of the backyard over to the other. So apparently he was going to a feeder at the neighbors or something. But it, it was pretty impressive. And they are the definition of cute. Oh, my gosh, they're cute little guys. And I know a lot of folks will say, yeah, my feeder during the night, something just empties it. It could be those guys, flying squirrels, but we also have, like, raccoons and things. Uh, possums will climb posts and get up there and eat stuff. So there's a few things out there that are enjoying what we put out uh, for the birds during the day. And uh, raccoons can be problematic in that you need to take it down. And, again, I just came from Alaska where uh, last year... In Haines, there was no salmon in the Chilkat River, and of course, bears depend on that. They have black bears and brown bears there. And at the ferry terminal, where you park your car and get on the ferry and go somewhere, the bears broke into 13 of those cars, 13 cars and damaged cars some bit, but they opened doors and got in there. A friend of mine up there in his yard, he has a Subaru, because I think about half the cars in Haines are Subarus. It, they didn't lock the cars, of course, in their yard, and they got up in the middle of the night, and the door was wide open, and the dome light was on, and they went out there to see what was going on. There was no damage, but there was a big grizzly print, uh, grizzly in a couple of different definitions but it was a brown bear on their seat just uh, like a calling card and i said it might have been a warning you know you have three days to get out of town or else <laughs> so it's interesting on the bear interaction there and there was a, a sow with two cubs that a lot of people were seeing uh, wandering around up there. And folks love taking pictures of bears. A friend was out, and she was feeding some crumbs to a Stellar's Jay, and uh, she didn't see, and here comes that bear with her two cubs. She said, they were within 20 feet of me, and then her brother corrected her because that's what brothers are for. <laughs> she said, 10 feet. It was 10 feet from you. <laughs> wow. So nothing bad happened, but okay. it was uh, quite a, now she has a bear story. <laughs> Thanks, everybody. Man, it's great hearing from you all. It's good to be back in Minnesota. Got back late last night, and it's just fun. So thanks for sitting on the front porch with us. Alaska was purchased from Russia for two cents an acre because Russia used an incompetent appraiser. Uh, the state is about one-fifth the size of the lower 48. It's so big, I, I go to an echo point each year. 
when I yell hello, it takes eight hours and 32 minutes for it to reply. It's that big. <laughs> uh, Haines, where I go, is at the northern end of the Inside Passage. It's roughly 80 miles north of Juneau. That's four and a half hours by ferry on the Alaska Marine Highway System. 14 miles south of Skagway. I bet a lot of listeners have cruised there, but if you drive from Haines to Skagway, it's 363 miles. Haines is situated at the upper end of North America's longest and deepest fjord. Haines is where the rainforest and the tundra do the chicken dance, and it creates an intoxicating mix of alpine meadows, mountains, and fjords, and things conspire to flatten the imagination, and mountains prevent that. Haines has no malls, fast food restaurants, big box stores, traffic jams, traffic lights. It's small, but both intimate and immense in a place where angels would land. It's where uh, both visitors and residents stop to look around. And you get paid to live there. The 2023 permanent fund dividend amount is $1,312 per person. Oil and mining revenues fund this annual payment. I grew up on a Minnesota farm where a mountain was an anthill or a gopher mound or a cow pie. That was a mountain. Someone asked if I'd like my photo taken by a mountain in Haines. I was so excited about having a mountain take my picture. (laughs) But it turned out they meant I'd be standing in front of a mountain with a fellow with Major League Whiskers manned the camera, getting your photo taken with mountains. What a thing. It's uh, you, With mountains in the background, you can't be anything more than appreciative and humble. Thanks, everybody, for listening. Uh, do something wild today. Get out there and look at a bird. Remember, Heartland is well worth driving past. And if for Mark's benefit, I think Clark's Grove is well worth stopping in and just saying hi to somebody. Right. Have a wonderful day. Thank you, Karen. Thank you, Al, and we'll chat with you next week, all right? All right. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Always good to chat with our good